the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll be joined today by David Marinus, journalist and author of a new book about how 1950s anti-communist crusades affected his family here in Detroit. And we're going to cast that story forward to today, when our own political environment is rife with divisions and beliefs that fuel the idea of isolation and persecution. And we want to hear from you. Who is being targeted in America today? And does that remind you of our past? It's all next on Detroit Today, but after this news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you have tuned in. Remember, tonight at 7 here at the station at WDET, you can join us to learn more about our trip to Spain, which happens next April. We're going to go to Spain, uh, to Madrid and Barcelona and Toledo and Seville, uh, all kinds of places uh, that I really love to go in that country. Uh, We're going to take a trip as a community, as a Detroit Today community. And you can come out tonight here at the station at 7 p.m. to learn more about how to join us on that trip. I will be here and the organizers of that trip will be here as well. So see you there if you are at all interested in that trip. All right. We're going to start today with a really, really great guest uh, who I'm really excited to have with us. Uh, But let's start here. The Red Scare of the 1950s was a persecution of liberal intellectuals and activists for their supposed ties to communist Russia. It ruined careers. It ruined lives. And it really divided America as the leaders of that crusade thundered from church pulpits and radio microphones and from the floor of Congress to create a more monolithic America. Journalist and author David Marinus was a young man living here in Detroit with his family during that time, and his father, also a newspaperman, was caught in the sights of Congress's House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1952. In his new book, A Good American Family, Marinus recounts what happened to his family in the 1950s, and he parallels that to what our current political mess is creating Today, I'm really, really pleased to have David Marinus with us in studio today to talk about this work. David, welcome back. Thank to you, Stephen. It's great to be with you. Always. Yeah, and it's great to have you here in Detroit. Welcome home. Yeah, welcome home is right. <laughs> you said I was a young man. I was actually a toddler. You were a toddler. Was, you were three. I was not quite three. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, let, let's start with an excerpt from this book, which I had a chance uh, to read over the weekend. It is, it is, of course, as everything you do, it is wonderfully written, and it's a, it's a really compelling story. Well, thank you. Uh, but let's, uh, let's just start with a quick excerpt from it. Um, you say, I was not yet three years old and have no memory of anything that happened that day. It was March 12th, 1952. My father, Elliot Marinus, sat at the witness table in room 740, of the federal building in Detroit, where he'd been subpoenaed to testify before the House Committee on Un-American Activities. As the questioning neared the end, he asked whether he could read a statement. There were several points he wanted to make about his freedoms as an American citizen, as an Army veteran who'd commanded an all-black company during World War II, and as a newspaperman. John Stevens Wood of Georgia, chairman of the committee, rejected this request. Quote, we don't permit statements, Wood said. He said, if you, if you have one written there, we shall be glad to have it filed with the clerk. The chairman's denial was arbitrary. If a witness was compliant, named names, repented, and humbly sought absolution, then a statement might be allowed. But my father was not compliant. He challenged the committee's definition of what it means to be an American and invoked the Fifth Amendment in refusing to answer questions about his political activities. So his statement was submitted to the committee clerk and from there, essentially buried and forgotten. I mean, that's such a, a, a vivid uh, recounting of the way in which uh, this was uh, sort of unfairly unfolding in America at that time. Talk about your earliest memories, though, of your father and how they were shaped by what happened to him uh, in 1952. 
I, as I said, I was not of consciousness that I can remember uh, when this happened uh, in March of 1952. And I would say that by the time I really, I mean, it was always a shadow in our family, but by the time I was of an age where I would think about things and remember things, my father and my mother had moved on and made new lives for themselves in Madison, Wisconsin. My father had come out of five years of blacklisting um, and uh, got a job at the Madison Capital Times, a progressive paper in Madison that had fought Joseph McCarthy forever. Hmm. Um, and my father by then had taught me several lessons that I've applied throughout my career as a writer. Um, never fall for any rigid ideology. Search for the truth wherever it takes you. Um, uh, even, and he was a very generous human being who would say things like, hate racism, not the racist, mm. sort of that sort of type of. So, so you know, the, the past was, it was not forgotten, but it was somewhat buried in our family. The lessons of it um, always were there, but they weren't spoken overtly. Uh, talk about what led your father to be, be in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And and we should be clear, this is a time in Detroit when there are several people uh, who are also being uh, called in front of that committee to testify. One of them is Coleman Young, Absolutely. Uh, who is uh, a, a young uh, activist and I think by that point a legislator. Um, not quite, but he's he on not, his way to He's it. on his yeah. way to yeah. that, right. Um, talk about what it was that that got the committee's attention about your dad? Well, what happened was that the House on american Activities Committee came to Detroit largely to try to disrupt and destroy the local of the United Auto Workers, Local 600, which had some communist and socialist and quote-unquote pinko influence. Um, and they had an informant uh, a paid informant by the FBI who later became known as the Grandmother Spy, a Detroit working-class woman named Berenice Baldwin who uh, joined the Communist Party uh, in Michigan in 1943, paid by the FBI, and was undercover for nine years. And she came in from the cold to testify at these hearings in Detroit and named hundreds of names. And my father, who had been a member of the Communist Party, uh, earlier was one of those names, sort of collateral damage. He was then working at the Detroit Times, and the day that Baldwin testified, um, a subpoena was issued to my father at the Detroit Times, and he was summarily fired. Wow. Even before there was any sort of inquiry? And oh, there was the no inquiry. To... That was the way things worked with that committee. There were no rights given to the... And, you know, I it, the whole issue of uh, sort of witch hunts. Um, you know, many people were had their lives disrupted and destroyed during that period, who were friends with communists or you know socialists or whatever. Uh, my father actually did belong to the Communist Party, so I'm not trying to pretend. I, I you know, he taught me to search for the truth, and that's the truth that that was. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was not a foreign agent. He was not a spy. He was only. Uh, following his ideological beliefs, which is uh, written into the Constitution, defending that freedom of speech and freedom of the press. Um, he would later say that he was ignorant, stubborn in his ignorance about the Soviet Union for a while, but but he was nothing more than that, and for that he was fired. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's hard to imagine, I think, for people today to think of that kind of uh, that kind of reaction to your political beliefs the, the the idea that what you believe in your heart is the way that the government should work or that a country should be run could wind you up in front of uh, in front of a congressional tribunal where where the goal is not uh, prosecution so much as it is just persecution it's the idea of labeling you in a way that would prevent you from working uh, might uh, get you thrown out of your church or uh, or social circles. I mean, this idea of, as you say, blacklisting, yes. being led by Congress. It's such a it's such a stark and 
a frightening uh, concept to, to, to even fathom. In his statement to the committee, he, he talks about how he was a veteran of World War II, a homeowner, a father of three, a, a married man, and had never committed any wrongdoings in his life except for what he believed in, and for that he was persecuted. Um, and the committee, um, th- that was their purpose. It was, there, there were also trials going on around the country, including a, a year later here in Detroit, the Michigan Six were, were tried, were indicted, tried, and convicted merely on the grounds that they belonged to the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. That's, th- that's the way the Smith Act worked in that era. If you did belong to the party, it was considered that you prima facie wanted the violent overthrow of the United States government. Um, when, when, when I went back and dig, dug deeply into my father's uh, past, you know, starting when he was the editorial editor of the Michigan Daily, mm-hmm. through the letters he wrote home from World War II, mm-hmm. you saw so clearly his love of America that he wanted to improve it, not destroy it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest this hour is David Marinus. He's a journalist, author of a new book called A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. Uh, David is a Detroit native. He is uh, the associate editor for The Washington Post. He's also a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting in 1993 for his coverage of then-candidate Bill Clinton uh, during the 1992 United States presidential election. He's also author of another really great book, uh, Once in a Great City, A Detroit Story. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what does it mean to you to be an American. We're talking about uh, David's father, who was uh, blacklisted essentially by the uh, House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1952 <clears throat> uh, called out merely for being uh, a communist, merely for believing in communist political theory. Do you have faith that our government can and will protect your rights and your beliefs? Or do you worry about the ways that government can target people who are deemed un-American, not just in the past, but even today. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Um, you know, David, I think it's really interesting that uh, that your dad um, <clears throat> identified as a communist and... and uh, uh, saw no saw no problem with that, um, and and had you know as you say, this extraordinary life of of service uh, and work and and family. Um, do you know how he came to be uh, identified as or identify as a communist? Well, uh, you have to understand the context of those of the era in which he came up. Um, he grew up in uh, Brooklyn during the, the depths of the Great Depression when capitalism was on the rocks uh, in many ways. Um, he grew up during a period when uh, fascism in Italy and Nazism in Germany were on the rise. He grew up during a period when, I mean, America has never uh, really addressed the uh, the racism that is this country's history, but it was, you know, segregation was even more pronounced during that period, and he had a very strong sense of racial justice as a young man. Um, and he was at the University of Michigan from 1936 to 1940 during a period which, in some ways, you could liken to being in school at Michigan from 1965 to 1970, mm. uh, you know, a, a period of of youthful rebellion and tumult over the, the disparities of this world. So all of that led him into that place. Yeah. Uh, and as you point out, he was the editorial page editor of the of the Michigan Daily, a post that I held all right. uh, from <laughs> 1991 to 1993. So <laughs> we you know, have that in common. <laughs> when, uh, when I started researching this book, the Bentley Historical Library at the University of Michigan was digitizing all of the past issues yes. of the Michigan Daily. Yes. And the wonderful people there gave me a head start on that about a few months before it went public. So I could just type in the name Elliot Marinus and find 200 essays, yeah. editorials that he wrote. 
Uh, it was an incredible newspaper during that period. I'm sure it's always been, but it was so sophisticated. Arthur Miller was one Arthur of the was writers. Yes. Uh, many other uh, really excellent writers. They they would write, you know, my father wrote book reviews of Thomas Wolfe and Richard Wright and a series about the Tennessee Valley Authority, and they had the uh, the best uh, wire service reports on what was going on in the world with Hitler and with the Spanish Civil War. It was really quite a paper. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I wonder what uh, all of this meant for your family in the later years. And in, in, in other words, um, how does your family talk about what happened to your dad today? Well, my parents are gone. They, they lived very healthy and successful lives into their mid-80s. Um, my, my parents really, uh, it was a shadow of our family's existence, but it was not um, talked about. My father had succeeded and moved on, and, and um, you know, his, his political views um, evolved into just being an open-minded liberal. He was not, you know, he, by 1952, he was already turning away from the Communist Party, and I got all the FBI records, uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages, and Every report after that says we have no indications that Elliot Marinus is in any way involved with the party. Mm-hmm. So, but they still followed him for another five years mm-hmm. and blacklisted him. Uh, in any case, uh, so now uh, they're gone. I have a brother and sister and many cousins. Uh, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact that my uncle, my mother's brother, also was uh, called before the committee, and he had a, fa- a fascinating experience in. He went to the University of Michigan and then went to fight in the Spanish Civil War. So his his daughters are alive, and I was with them actually last night at the Detroit Public Library, and uh, they said that their dad didn't talk about it either, you know, really. <laughs> um, so, but now, you know, we're all, what I came to understand is how that, uh, what my father, what my parents endured shaped how I think about the world. Um not in reaction to it, but it just deepens sort of my understanding of, you know, why why did I come up with this strong sense of racial justice? Why does my son and my daughter have that? And it all goes back to my parents. Um, and all of the better lessons of life that I've learned came from that experience of the deep uh, crucible that they had to go through. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when you... When you think about this, uh, does it shape the way you think about this country and what it means to be an American? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can't help but think about that when you understand that the chairman of the committee who called my father un-American was a Georgia racist who'd voted against every civil rights bill for decades, voted for the poll tax, had briefly joined the Ku Klux Klan as a young man, and was the the driver of a car that carried the lynched body of a Jewish industrialist after the famous lynching of Leo Frank in 1913 in Georgia. So, you know, this is the person who's calling my father, who was the commander of an all-black unit in World War II, un-American. What is, what is that all about? What is, who decides who's American and what it means? Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Marinus about his new book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. Uh, Stay with us, and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We're going to talk next about how this story casts forward to today. Who are the people who are targeted today, maybe in similar ways to communists during the 1950s? And how does that affect the political discourse that we're having? Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. My guest this hour is David Marinus. He's a journalist and author of a new book called A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. Uh, that book is about the 
appearance of his dad in front of the committee on how on the House Committee on Un-American Activities in 1952, right here in Detroit. His father was accused of being a communist uh, and appeared before the committee. Was fired from his job for the accusation. Um, we're talking about that kind of activity in American history. This idea of political persecution uh, that sometimes unfolds when we have bitter divisions about politics or culture in America. Um, We would love to hear from you as well. What does it mean to you to be an American? Do you have faith that our government is able to protect your rights to be an American, your rights to identify with unpopular beliefs or causes? Or do you worry that the ways that government can target people is really dangerous, not just in our past, but even today. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. We'd also love to hear from folks who maybe have similar stories about the 1950s. Uh, Were people in your family targeted by this uh, committee on un-American activities, accused of being communists? Think of Father Coughlin, a very popular Mm -hmm. figure here in southeast Michigan at that time, uh, and the things that he did from the pulpit, from the church pulpit, to sort of fuel this anti-communist rage and fury that was uh, unfolding in America. Uh, Do you remember those times? Do you have relatives who were victims of that kind of persecution? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Uh, David, I'm I'm wondering if you intended to write this book so that it would be released in a political environment that is... Not identical, of course, but I think has real echoes of what happened in the 1950s. The honest answer is no. (laughs) Um, I started this book before Donald Trump appeared on the scene. But, you know, history has a tendency to repeat itself. I wrote a book about Vietnam in the 60s and what it, again, what it means to be patriotic or loyal to the country. And that came out right before the Iraq War. And I didn't, you know, I started before I knew about that. So um, it certainly has uh, relevant echoes today. And um, so I and I knew that that's the way American history goes in these cycles of yeah. of uh, freedom and repression and and truth uh, seeking and mythology. So yeah. uh, here it did. It came around again. So I, I wonder what you make of Donald Trump and the support for him and the movement, I think, that he has given real voice to, which is, I think, predicated in many ways on this idea that uh, that certain people, because of what they believe, are un-American, that certain people who are here uh, uh, through ways that that uh, that don't look like the, re- the way that many other Americans got here are not as American as others. Um, as you were sort of even finishing this book, that had to, I guess, oh, be going through your mind. Yes. And you know, I, I consider Donald Trump a master manipulator, um, and the uh, so he has used uh, fear as a political weapon. Um, he's used the demonization of others as a political weapon. He has used the notion that only certain people are great and American. Make America great again means what? Does it mean going back to the era of segregation? Does it mean going back to... Uh, the the the, the uh, difficult uh, parts of the past, mm-hmm. um, you know. So that's a, that's a mythology that he's tapped into. I think that that um, demagogues and even you know leaders of any sort um, can move people um, to their better or worst instincts. Um, a lot of people, not everyone, mm-hmm. but but a, a, a horde of people can go either way and. And when there are vulnerabilities um, and uh, insecurities that, the, you know, a master demagogue can draw on those. And that's exactly what Joe McCarthy did and what Donald Trump has been doing with one, at least one enormous difference. Um, the members of the House on american Activities Committee were congressmen. Joseph McCarthy was a senator. 
Donald Trump is president of the United States, and that comes with it a lot more power. Yeah. So, so uh, I mentioned before that uh, you won the Pulitzer Prize for covering the campaign of Bill Clinton in 1992 uh, as he was winning the presidency. I, I, I also wonder what you make uh, 20, 20 some years later, 25 years later of the campaign that Donald Trump put together to win the presidency in 2016, how different or similar maybe it was to uh, the things that, that, that you saw back in 92. Um, not, you know, the, the world had changed considerably from the time when Bill Clinton was running. It was just at sort of the dawn of the, of the internet era. Um, he didn't even have, he didn't know how to use a, he didn't use a computer. Um, and Donald Trump uh, is the Twitter master. Uh, has 60 million some followers on that whenever he tweets and people jump at whatever he says. Um, every one of his, when he was campaigning, every one of his speeches was uh, televised uh, from beginning to end like it was some kind of reality TV show. And as uh, I think Pete Buttigieg, the candidate last night, said something like people are drawn to car wrecks. And, and uh, hmm. you know, that's sort of part of what Donald Trump was doing. He was creating a sensation. It was, it was uh, that, that's what his campaign was. And people became addicted to it um, for better and worse. And, and, you know, I mean, for worse, but, but they became addicted to it. Um, and so I, I don't compare it to any previous campaign. I don't compare him to any previous politician. I mean, he certainly had some characteristics that other politicians have, but he's, he's, he's of a kind. That's yeah. not to say that, that the Republican Party isn't responsible for him, sure. because they are. Uh, you know, in well, and they the, continue to support him. They continue to support him. In, in the McCarthy era, uh, a Republican, Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, stood up to McCarthy, as did a senator from Vermont, and f- eventually as did the president of the United States, a Republican, Dwight Eisenhower. Yes. Um, and until, uh, I guess, yesterday, I kept saying, where is the Margaret Chase Smith of today? Maybe this guy from Michigan is, who I don't know if he's the start of it Justin or not. Justin Amash. Ma- sure. Justin Amash, but he did at least... Speak up. Yeah, yeah, in a in a very bold and and yeah. I thought detailed uh, mm-hmm. way. I mean, this was not just a oh I think this is wrong. This right. was hey I read this report and yep. here are the things in there that exactly. make me draw these conclusions. You know, one of the things that I've I, I've uh, thought a lot about in in terms of Donald Trump and Bill Clinton is uh, is the way in which they appealed to the same oh, voters okay. with yes. the same concerns, but with very different intentions. So Bill Clinton in 1992 um, comes to Michigan several times, for instance, and and gets people in Macomb County yes. uh, really excited about this hope that, that there is another way, that the jobs that we've lost aren't coming back. He said that. But we can we can go in another direction and we can have prosperity again. Um, and and he wins. He wins. Uh, he wins those votes uh, overwhelmingly. Donald Trump does the same thing and basically tries to scare those people mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, into the idea that you know if his opponent wins, uh, they'll never work. Uh, and says I I can um, you know I can fix that. It's it's across a quarter century that difference, but. That's very astute, Stephen. You're, you're it, talking about the same yeah, voters. Yeah, though. and um, uh, Clinton's uh, Macomb County was at the heart of what Clinton wanted to do. Uh, his pollster and advisor, Stanley Greenberg, had studied the voting patterns of Macomb County um, and wrote papers and sort of understood that that was what the Democrats had to appeal to to get back into power. And Clinton took that to heart and and. And you're right. As I said earlier, you can appeal to people's better instincts or worse instincts. Trump used those people and appealed to their fear, their fear of everything that was that they, you know, that they thought was taking their lives away from them. And uh, Bill Clinton appealed to their hopes. Uh, that was his whole campaign, you know, the man from hope, whether that was sort of <laughs> mythology or not. <laughs> right. It was what he was uh, pushing. And he had a 
you know, he was a, uh, he had this uh, ability to both be a Rhodes Scholar and a Bubba. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and also uh, at the same time do that. He, he, he did a couple of, of things that um, were on purposely trying to bring back the white vote in a, in a uh, racially tinged way. You know, the, the uh, Sister Soldier event mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. where he chastised a, a young black rapper and, and a few other things. But, but he overall was, had an ability to both uh, appeal to white working class and to African Americans, yeah. which is pretty unusual. And, and a lot of politicians can't cross that divide the way Bill Clinton could. Yeah. Um, and he, so, that, so he was able to appeal to Macomb County without just appealing to their fears. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. My guest is David Marinus. Uh, he's the associate editor of the Washington Post and author of a new book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. He's a Detroit native, and that story is about the uh, persecution that his father faced in the 1950s uh, because he identified as a communist. If you want to join the conversation, of course, call us and tell us what you remember of that era. Also, tell us how... Today's era reminds you maybe of some of those things, some of the things that we're talking about in terms of uh, who's an American and who's not, who deserves to be here and who doesn't. Uh, Are those things echoes of that past from the 1950s? Let's start with Andy in Canton. Andy, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Um, I, I read the description of David's book in the Free Press last week, and uh, I have to say, we have a kind of a family connection. My grandfather worked for Ford in mm. the service bureau for Harry Bennett, mm. and he was a spy. For the He joined the Communist Party, and he was a spy. And a couple of years ago, a home he owned in Howell, the people were doing a major remodel, and they found four boxes of five-by-seven cards full of descriptions of people, their names, their addresses, their nationalities. And uh, this is very similar. I mean, he took, he evidently took uh, good notes, but we turned these all over to Wayne State. <laughs> oh, and, wow. <laughs> and um, I can't remember the, the director of the, the Luke Ruther Library, mm-hmm. but uh, these were amazing. I mean, we looked through a few of them, but I mean, these boxes were literally full of notes of people, where they were born, a lot. Wow. It seemed to me a lot of Ford employees that were first-generation yes, Americans. they absolutely were. And um, uh, Harry Bennett was the notorious sort of strong man for, for uh, Mr. Ford, mm-hmm. the original Ford. Um, that's a fascinating story that you're telling, and I wish I had known about it uh, <laughs> while I was researching this book. I don't know if my my dad didn't work for Ford, so his name wouldn't be in there. But that was, but they were, yeah. The the Ford Motor Company um, was keeping tabs on absolutely everyone who worked there and their political inclinations. Interestingly, um, your your grandfather and uh, Harry Bennett and those people weren't particularly eager to help the House on American Activities Committee. And there's a scene in my book where when UAC comes to Detroit, they're they're really sort of they had to deeply pressure Ford to turn over all those names. They eventually did, but Ford didn't want to do it. Um, they wanted to use it for their own purposes and not uh, publicize who these people were. Um, you know, as I said earlier, there, there was a grandmother spy who, who named all the names at those hearings. And much like you, her, her um, well, I don't know what you, knowledge you had of that past, but but I talked to the to the granddaughter of Berenice Baldwin, and she said that she had no clue. She was very close to her grandmother, had no clue about that past until mm-hmm. she went into a closet after her mother died and found all these clippings of that era, and there it was, sort wow. of like those people finding those boxes. Hmm. Uh, this this idea of the use of of spies that's really that's uh, uh, really an interesting wrinkle. To this whole thing, this idea of people who are trying to ferret out uh, who's a communist and who's not. The, the FBI was uh, obsessed with finding every communist in America during that period. And, you know, there were there were some reasons for some fear. I mean, there were there were foreign agents um, and uh, 
there, you know, there was some control by the Soviet Union of some members of the party, um, but it was um, the vast number of them were just naive mm-hmm. uh, and idealistic. Um, but my, you know, in the, in the FBI papers that I found of my father, the hundreds of pages, I think I counted thirty-seven informants that were wow. used to go yeah. to follow his life. Yeah, I mean that's really that's really incredible. Yeah. Uh, I I wonder, David, did your father ever consider going in front of this committee and telling them what they quote unquote wanted to know, or or, or was that even a possibility? I mean, was there was there a, a way for him to appear there and preserve more of uh, more of his life? Um, not, no. <laughs> uh, the way it worked is if you started talking, then you had to keep talking. Otherwise you'd be cited for contempt. So he would have had to name names, which he would not. Which do. he was not willing to He do. was not willing to do. And the, the three page statement that he wanted, that he wrote and wanted to deliver is a very powerful explanation of why and what he believed in and freedom of speech and freedom of the press and the use of of these committees to browbeat people and the way that had been going on since the, the Salem witch trials. And, and that kind of, um, uh, that kind of, I guess, betrayal that he must've felt, uh, after having been accused and then appeared in front of this committee and lost his job. Did you ever detect that, um, uh, that he felt that later in terms of, um, the way he related to people, the way he trusted. Uh, I mean, that's a that's a really spectacular thing to have happen to you, uh, especially after having done all the other things he did, mm-hmm. served in the mm-hmm. in in the uh, armed forces during the war and things like that. Did it change him? Um, it's extraordinary to me that it did not. That that so many uh, people who went through that experience either transformed into neoconservative, staunch anti-communists, or became uh, embittered. And my father went through it with a level of optimism that that really amazes me. And so certainly um, he carried with him the lessons of of that period and some of the scars, but but it did not um, diminish him. I mean, he 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 was not the sort of person that that held deep grudges i mean he would you know he would talk about richard nixon who had been on the committee mm-hmm. and and certain people that he found re- repellent um and reminiscent of the mccarthy era but he did not you know when when um when he died the first person who called my mother and me was tommy thompson the republican governor of wisconsin because mm-hmm. my father in his career, had developed a level of of uh, equanimity and fairness that that transcended the politics of the moment. Wow, wow. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Marinus about his new book, A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. Uh, We're also going to continue talking about how those times maybe cast forward a little bit into the political conversations we're having right now. Think about immigration, uh, the debate that we're having about that in the country. Uh, Also, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us what you fear about being targeted, maybe by the government for your beliefs, maybe the color of your skin or the way you live your life. Are those things that are still happening right now? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is David Marinus, journalist and author of A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. David is a Detroit native. He serves as the associate editor for The Washington Post, won a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting in 1993 for his coverage of candidate Bill Clinton during the 1992 
United States presidential election. David is also author of Once in a Great City, a Detroit story, which is a wonderful tale about this city uh, and its past. Um, We're talking about uh, what happened to his father in the 1950s, uh, being called before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, uh, accused of being a communist, uh, someone who was undermining the United States and the consequences that meted out uh, to him as a result of that. We're also talking about how those times kind of cast forward today. Think about the conversations that we're having, the political conversations we're having, in which we are sometimes talking about people as though they are not fully Americans or questioning whether they're Americans. We really want to hear from you as well. Uh, do you remember this time of the 1950s? Do you remember uh, this uh, communist, anti-communist crusade that many people were on, on, including the U.S. Congress. Is there someone in your family who was targeted uh, by the committee on House, uh, the House Committee on Un-American Activities? Um, also, tell us today how you feel about the way people are targeted for their beliefs, or maybe the color of their skin, or the way they live their lives. Is the government doing enough to protect us? Uh, are we doing enough to protect each other? Are we devolving into a space where we are going to have even more bitter disputes over the idea of who's American or who's not? As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, David, I want to I start this segment talking about what you see out of the, the immigration uh, com- conversation in particular that reminds you, perhaps, of these things that your father faced uh, so long ago. Well, in every aspect of it, there are uh, echoes uh, from Donald Trump uh, disparaging a judge because he's uh, Latino saying he can't be fair, which is another way of saying he can't be American. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the um, discrimination against Muslims, the Muslim ban, uh, you know, how can a Muslim be an American? Uh, imagine that in Detroit where there are so many people from the Middle East who are Muslim. Uh, the, uh, the, the way that, that he's targeted um, families and separated families and disrupted families at the border. I think that the strongest lesson of the, not lesson, but impact of the Red Scare era was the ability of the government to disrupt and destroy lives, which is what they're doing again. And for the same larger themes at work here on, on we don't want you as an American. Um, But that echoes through American history. I mean, it starts with the near annihilation of the original Americans who weren't American enough for, for European Americans, mm-hmm. you know, the, the native uh, nations of this country, and then the enslavement of, of, of black people um, and the denial of the right to vote to women. So there's all, you know, they, none of those groups were American enough for whom? For, yeah. for, for white male landowners. Right. Uh, you know, I, I also uh, wonder what you make of us as Americans and the way we respond to these kinds of things. So in the 1950s, um, uh, was it fear that made people uh, sort of sit back and say, well, this is okay. These kinds of inquiries are going to go along with them at least for a while and and see what's at the bottom of this. And now, if you think of uh, the, the, the way in which uh, Rashida Tlaib, who's uh, mm-hmm. the uh, Muslim American congressperson who represents uh, a big part of Detroit and, and the suburbs here, uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, th- these, 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 um, there's something about us, I think, that, that, that is at the bottom of these things, too. It's not just oh, the people who are persecuting them. Yeah. It's, it's the support that they have. Right. The people who are persecuting them are taking care, taking advantage of Republic, of the public's um, lack of, of concern about this because it's not affecting them directly. And also because a, a lot of the people who are, who are being persecuted are different from the majority. Um, and so um, if it's not affecting you personally, 
and it's you're different, and these people are are somehow different from you. Then, then um, the the level of of recognition that at the foundation of this democracy are civil liberties, and that civil liberties imply that that's they have to protect everyone, yeah. otherwise they're worthless. That's what you know. My father's lawyer and the lawyer for Coleman Young. Uh, at those hearings was George Crockett, mm-hmm. who went on to become a congressman from this area. Yeah. And George Crockett um, wrote a, a manifesto about how freedom is everybody's business. And he was not a communist, but he defended communists because he believed that the the same ways that the his that black people were being persecuted is a way that the communists in the United States were being persecuted. Mm-hmm. And so he was calling on people to wake up and understand that, that it's going to be the, the outsider who's, who's at the root of our defense of civil liberties. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Barbara in Madison Heights. Barbara, welcome Hi. to the show. Hi. Hey. Well, thank you very much. Sure. Uh, to be fair, I caught the tail end of your conversation before the phone number was broadcasted, but <laughs> I, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, I just turned 55, and I'm in the process of trying to finish a book called A People's Sister of the United States by Howard Zinn. Mm. And I used to have these very spirited conversations with my uncle, who served in the war, and he uh, he passed away recently. But uh, he, he he said to me as we were talking, um, well, you're a socialist. And I'd say, well, you say it like it's a bad thing. <laughs> and he says, well, well, no, no, actually, no, you're, you're a communist. <laughs> and I said, well, you also say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> so I, I don't know what to make of this world, but what I, what I have learned um, through through my you know half a century is really nothing's changed. Uh, mm. Them, they, those people, and I don't know who they are. I don't know who to be angry at. Them, they, those people are running things. Uh, divide and conquer is how you know whoever's running things gets things done. So it's was the red scare. Now we got the brown scare. Um, it, you know, racial tensions, uh, abortion, uh, anything to keep us arguing and, and really paying attention to what's really going on. And I'm not even sure what that is. So um, yeah. I, th- that was my comment. Barb, I really appreciate your mm-hmm. your call and, and your thoughts there. You know, there there is something about, <clears throat> and I think Barbara hits on this really well. The 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 way that language plays a role here, right? You're sure. a communist. Right. You're a socialist. You're an illegal uh, alien. I mean, all of these things uh, get they, they get simplified in ways that makes it easy, I think, for people to channel their fears through that and say, "Yeah, this is the problem. This is the thing that's uh, causing me discomfort in my life or insecurity." Certain words have come to have explosive uh, intent, and those the ones you cited are that. Uh, what is an illegal alien? I mean, think about that. It's a think human being, that. right, yeah. who wants I mean, to live in this country. It's such a, it's such yeah, a crude not, and... Uh, uh, no one's illegal, uh, you know. Um, and it's meant to dehumanize. It's meant to dehumanize. All of those terms are. One of the things that I discovered when I, when I was writing this book, I... I I have a large family, and I told a, a lot of nephews and cousins about what I was doing and how it would be about a part of our family that they probably didn't know about. And the the young people, 40 and under, uh, their reaction to the words communism and socialism <laughs> is completely different from those of my era when we went through the the you know the bomb shelters and the and Khrushchev pounding his fist at the United Nations and all of this level of of fear of the world coming to an end because of communism. Uh, you know my the younger people in my family view socialism in a you know completely different way than our generation does because that the taint of the word is you know it was not leveled with them. Right. You know? So. So yes, words can have and and Donald Trump and Joe McCarthy were masters of understanding how to turn the language on its end for their own purposes. How to make make it so that uh, those words have that kind of power. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Let's go to Bob in Lake Orion. Bob, welcome to Detroit today. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hi. Go ahead. I remember just quickly. I remember as a kid, if you were against 
lynching, you could be accused of being a communist. Wow. I mean, that's how extreme some of these people were. And, and uh, Bob, I'm, I'm wondering uh, what, what era this, this is that you're talking about. We're talking, we're talking the 50s. I, mm-hmm. I grew up in western Pennsylvania. You're yeah. talking the 50s. And if you were yeah. against, lynch, against lynching, you would be called a communist. Yes, if you wow. lynching, civil rights, all that was supposed to be as communist. Wow. Yeah, and one of the the uh, one of the factors that led many people to communism was the fact that the Communist Party was standing up strongly against lynching yeah. and for civil rights. and for civil rights. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Yeah, uh, Bob, I really appreciate the uh, the call and the comment. I, 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 that's that's something that we mm. didn't really talk about. Uh, is that connection? Mm. Between uh, you know the civil rights movement and anti-communism, that that uh, most civil rights leaders were accused at some time or another of oh, being absolutely, communists, absolutely, yeah. including Coleman Young and yeah. George Crockett, right. you know, and right. and um, you know, luckily the uh, African American community has a diff- completely different context of what it means to be an American, so yeah. them standing up to that. Um, was a badge of honor for them, as opposed to uh, disqualifying for their political future. Yeah. Okay, David Marinus, uh, author of A Good American Family, The Red Scare and My Father. It was really great to have you here. Oh, thanks. I really enjoyed this, Steve. Always great to talk with you. All right, that's going to do it for me today. You want to tune in tomorrow, and we're going to talk about the bribery scandal in the state legislature and what it means for perceptions of money and politics here in Michigan. Also, join us tonight at 7 here at the station, WDET, when we're going to preview the trip that we're going to take to Spain next April. We're going to visit all kinds of places there. It's one of my favorite places on the planet, and I'm really looking forward to going there with listeners. So if you can, stop by figure out about the trip and join us if you can. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.